Did you guys hear the story last month of that um, lady in Columbia that her, her family had been missing her for like two years? And these Colombian fishermen found her floating in a life raft off the, the northern coast of Colombia. She'd been out there, and they don't really know how long, and I tried to research it a little more today. I just saw the headline at the end of last month, and apparently she's got some mental health issues, so the, the full story is not really clear. But anyway, these fishermen find this lady hypothermic and dehydrated beyond imaginable situations, clinging on to this little, uh, not even a life raft, but really a life preserver. So I was thinking about that this week, this lady, and what it takes for a person to survive drifting in the ocean, thinking you're never going to be found and get your toes nibbled by sharks or something. Then I realized that, y'all remember the Chilean miners who were stuck like half a mile underground? Well, that was, they were rescued 10 years ago Tuesday, October 13th, 2010. That time has flown. Yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago. But, you know, they, they survived half a mile underground. There were 69 of them. No, 69 days, 33 miners. They survived. This is one of the big questions. How do, you, how do 33 people survive half a mile underground? And they had some tuna, cookies, and milk. And they rationed it out to where each man got a spoonful of tuna, half a cookie, and half a glass of milk every 48 hours. So they were able to stretch out what meager food they had down there and, and survive crawling out of that hole you know, after 33 days. It's crazy. You think about what, what does it take a person to survive? You probably know other stories. The guy who got his arm caught in Arizona while he was hiking and sawed his arm off so he could find his way back to the trailhead with his little pocket knife. Human beings are amazing. There's something within us, God's placed it there, no doubt, that kicks in when we are in extreme circumstances and enables us to fight. And if I'm honest, I don't know that I would have what it takes to saw off my arm or to survive underground or to uh, you know, drift out in the ocean believing that someday I'll be found. I don't know that that's within me. I don't know about you. Maybe you feel like you could do it. And if so, that show on History Channel alone might be a wonderful thing for you to look at because they drop these people off in the wilderness and most of them go crazy within just a few short days. But this morning, we're continuing our series of the book of Daniel. And the reason I bring all this up is because the pressures that those people faced underground in Chile and out in the waters of Colombia, you know, we're probably never going to face them ourselves. Lord willing, we hope. But we do face pressures in other ways. Um, today we're going to see an example of that. That Daniel was really fighting for survival, not against the forces of nature, but against a godless and pagan world. And I think as we look at his story, certain elements of it continue to jump out at me. And the element that comes in today is the doggedness that he had to be faithful. And so I think, you know, while we're not adrift at sea and while we're not political prisoners being indoctrinated in Babylon's court, uh, you and I better learn from his example because we are facing immense cultural pressure. And your soul, and I've tried to make sure that I measure my words today, but your soul and your life depend on you remaining faithful in the fire. 
And if you're wondering what I mean by that, just hang with me and I'm going to prove it to you in just a second. But first, we're going to jump back in here to Daniel chapter 1. And I want you to see the pressure Daniel and his friends face to conform to life in Babylon. So if you've got your Bible, look there at Daniel 1. We're going to read what we read last week because we only read two verses. But Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to, land, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now last week we dug really deep in those first two verses. We saw how Nebuchadnezzar was on this rampage conquering all the kingdoms in the ancient Near East, and he finally came to Judah, to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And he took Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, away in chains. He loaded up vessels from the temple, the golden lampstands and objects, goblets and plates we're going to see later in the book. And he took them back to Babylon. But those weren't the only spoils of war that Nebuchadnezzar took. He also took people. And he had a very particular kind of person in mind. He wasn't interested in what people call the people of the land, the peasants, the poorest of the poor. Instead, he was after the elite. He was after the princes, the aristocratic children. And so he says he's looking for people who are already skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, and understanding learning. This kind of kidnapping was really common in the ancient world because if you're on your way to establishing a worldwide empire, you need a constant influx of skilled labor. Because every territory that you conquer is going to require loyal, skilled, acculturated satraps and governors and philosophers and managers and all kinds of people. And the best way to make sure you have the people you need for the machine you're building is to kidnap them and force them into service. The second reason was because by taking all these elite people out of Judah and bringing them into Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar assured himself that there wouldn't be anybody left to, I don't know, assert a national identity. Hey, we're Judeans, after all, and to lead a rebellion against him. He took the elite out and put them to work for himself. So Ashpenaz is this leader, the overseer of the king's court, and he goes and he's looking through the, the, you know, the ruins of the city, got all these kids lined up, and he finds the ones who fit the bill. They're beautiful, good-looking. And the only other place the Bible uses that phrase, um, they were beautiful in appearance, is to describe women. So he found some boys who looked good and who were smart, 
who'd already gone through some kind of tutoring and education for service in the kingdom of Judah. And he brings them back with him. And among all these boys who are no more than 12 or 13 are the men we know. You know, Daniel, and then we all know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they end up in the king's court. You can imagine, uh, Tremper Longman's a, a, a scholar, written a lot about Daniel, and I'm, I've used one of his books for this series. It's really good and really accessible. If you're looking to read deeper on this uh, book of Daniel, you should look at it. It's How to Read Daniel. But he calls it Babylon University, where he, he, these boys are taken and they are, are put to work, learning all sorts of new things. Uh, you, you might have picked up how systematic and holistic this sort of education was going to be. Um, Nebuchadnezzar said that what he was after was teaching them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Well, you know, growing up in Judah, you learn the language of Judah. You learn Hebrew. And you learn the stories that make up your cultural memory. Who are we as Judeans? You know, Daniel, Mishael, Hanani, and Azariah had, had heard the story of how Yahweh, the God who created the earth, had called Abraham out of Ur had rescued his people out of Egypt, had given them the promised land through Joshua, established a kingdom in Saul. John called me out. I forgot about Saul last week. But established the kingdom in Saul and then brought it to a high point in David and Solomon. They knew this story. This was their cultural memory. But Nebuchadnezzar was going to re-educate them and enculturate them to a whole new way of seeing the world. Instead of the books of Moses, they'd learn the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation epic, and maybe you know the epic of Gilgamesh. These stories about how the world came to be don't hold up the creator God of the Bible, but they hold up Marduk and Bel, and these are the gods who are behind the scenes pulling the strings. These stories are still known to us because they are written on tablets in cuneiform, um, and they're in museums all around the world. And so these boys would have gone into university to learn these stories and to learn the language they were written in so that they could write stories about their king and about how his gods had helped him to conquer peoples of the world like little kingdom of Judah, to be supervisors, making sure that things come and go as they're supposed to, and to know all the magical arts that make up the Chaldean worldview. I mean, we're going to see this more at the end, but these things are astrology, reading sheep's livers and tea leaves to try to understand what the gods are doing in the world. I mean, what we're talking about here is Nebuchadnezzar taking good little Hebrew boys and turning them into Babylonians, a holistic and systematic re-education and enculturation to prepare them for service in his court. But beyond that, this re-education and enculturation had another effect. It totally disconnected them from who they used to be it weakened their ties to their God, to their people, to their homeland. And to further weaken that bond, Ashpenaz changes their names. He re-identifies them. You're no longer going to be Daniel, which means God is my judge. Now you're going to be Belteshazzar, which is kind of disputed. What does that mean? Bel is one of the gods in, uh, in ancient Babylonian religion, but it also means Lord and Belta is like the divine lady, and so there's a, there's a disagreement over what it means. But I come down, I, I, it doesn't matter. What happens is Ashpenaz says, hey, God is your judge. Well, I'll show you. We're going to rename you after our gods. We're going to totally invert 
while Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's names were assurances to remind them every day of their life that God was on their side, looking after them, blessing them, providing them, Ashpenaz inverts it. No longer defined by Yahweh, you are defined by our gods. And so this whole re-identification, re-education, enculturation represents a holistic and systematic effort to conform them to their new life in Babylon. And what's surprising to me is that it seems like they pretty much go along with it. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they don't get up in arms about a new name or about learning new languages. That's not a big deal to them. But what they can't handle, where they draw the line, is on the food that comes from the king's table. And so that was the pressure to conform. I want you to see next Daniel's determination to resist, starting in verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for three days. Or, sorry, 10 days. So Daniel and these Judean princes decide that some of this re-education and indoctrination is not that big of a deal. They're willing to go along with it, probably, you can imagine, to sort of avoid the kind of punishment and chastisement that's not spelled out for us here in Daniel 1, but you got to know what's happening. You know, I can't imagine that they're treating all these kids like children of their own. They're prisoners in the king's court. So rather than sticking their neck out every time they have a problem and causing a fuss with their Babylonian overlords, they draw the line on one thing. And it's on food from the king's table. See, I think one of the things that we have to understand, and it's really difficult for people like us who love bacon and pulled pork. I heard you, you smoked a, a pork butt yesterday. Love that stuff, you know. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around why God would ever tell a person they can't eat something as delicious as that. But for the Jewish people, that was one of the defining badges and markers of cultural identity. You know, you could be a Jew and live all over the world, be a faithful Jew. It didn't matter what culture you were in. The book of Esther shows us a Jew thriving in Susa. But your commitment to the dietary restriction set you apart, made you totally different. And what Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah knew was that they had no confidence that the food that was going to come from the king was going to be clean or okay for them to eat. The difference between being called a different name and learning a new language was that to eat from the king's table would have required an explicit act of disobedience against God's law. And there are really three reasons why this is the case. One, it's just obvious. Pork is taboo for Jews and wasn't for the Babylonians. 
And so they had no expectation that when they got their food, it was going to be clean meat, lamb or goat or cow. You know, they'd had no confidence in that. And so rather than get served a plate and ask the awkward question, hey, what is this, by the way? You know, I can't eat that. And then cause a stink in front of everybody. Daniel decides he's going to skirt the issue and just ask for a meal of vegetables. But there's another reason, I think, that Daniel knew that this food wasn't going to be clean, and that's because at least some of the food that would have come from Nebuchadnezzar's table would have been sacrificed in honor of idols. And so for him to partake of this food would have been to join in in the worship of some other god. And so he couldn't do it. No way. I'm faithful to God. We saw this last week. That's what God's after, is single-minded, wholehearted devotion from his people. You shall have no other gods before me. And for Daniel to take the chance that some kind of food would be on his plate that had been sacrificed to an idol was something he wasn't willing to risk. But I think the major issue here is what it would have represented for him to be uh, taking that food every day. You know, in the ancient world, and, and even today, uh, eating with a person is not just about getting your sustenance, but it means to share and partake in life together. You know, we talk about breaking the bread with someone. You know, you're, you're in this thing together, sitting around a table, sharing stories and laughter, and you're participating in life together. And I think Daniel knew that if he began to eat this food that came every day, rich food, delicious food, wonderful wine, that he would be joining in the idolatrous arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. He'd be participating in all that his Babylonian empire represented. And we're going to see in the next few weeks, it represents a willful affront toward the God of heaven. And Daniel didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so he decided he was going to go and, you know, ask, hey, can I have vegetables and water instead? And the crazy thing is Ashpenaz says, no, no, you can't do this. Ashpenaz knew what was really at foot. It wasn't just about being picky or wanting a different diet. Ashpenaz knew that what would happen is that Daniel's religious convictions would be interpreted by the king as treasonous disobedience. This wasn't just about food. This is about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah becoming a Babylonian, whole cloth, eating the food, speaking the language, drinking the drinks, seeing the world the way Babylonians saw the world. It would have been treason for them not to do it. But apparently God gave Daniel favor. I love how it says that God gave Daniel favor. He got a no for an answer, but at least he wasn't killed on the spot. You know, so he's able to go down the organizational hierarchy one step to the guy that Ashpenaz had put directly in charge of him, the steward, and cut a deal with him to create this test, a 10-day trial period, at the end of which the steward could decide if they were worse off or not. You see, I, I love this. Today in, in our culture, Daniel's fast or Daniel's diet is like a weight loss scheme. But that's exactly the problem for these Babylonians. What Nebuchadnezzar's food was meant to do was to fatten them up, to get them healthy looking, to make them plump. And so Daniel rejected this fatty, rich food and drink, and they just knew, like, when it comes time, you can't eat vegetables for 10 days while these guys are over here eating the most delicious cut of pork you've ever tasted in your entire life and expect to look the same on the other side. Now you're going to be gaunt and skinny and your cheeks are going to be hollowed. You're going to be on the verge of death if you only eat vegetables. Eat some meat. 
But Daniel knew that it wasn't worth it. He determined in his heart to resist. And so God gave him favor, and he goes through this 10 days of testing. And I think that this is, I don't know, maybe you've put God to the test before in a sinful way. But what Daniel does is put God to the test and challenge him on the basis of his own word. He says, God, you see what I'm doing here. That I'm saying, I will not defile myself by eating the king's food. I'm going to only eat vegetables. And in ten days, Lord, you better not leave me out to dry. You better come through and sustain me like you said you were going to do. You better prove that it's right to be faithful to you, regardless of the cost. See, Daniel believed that God would never abandon someone who had committed themselves to living faithfully according to God's law. So Daniel put it all on the line. God, it's all on you. Nobody can take credit for it. Nebuchadnezzar can't take the credit for giving me this delicious food. This is just vegetables and water. Lord, only you can make me look the same as the other boys after 10 days. And so look what happens. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, that's at the end of three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I think this is amazing. Ten days are up, the steward comes and assesses the Judean teenagers and decides that against all reason... And logical explanation, Daniel and the other, the other Judean boys are fatter, more healthy looking than those who ate the delicious foods from the king's table. So he, he agrees, like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I'll take away your food and your wine. You can eat vegetables and drink water. And God still didn't abandon them. But for three years, they ate vegetables and drank water. Then, at the end of that three years, Nebuchadnezzar comes. And just as the steward had found that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were fatter and more healthy-looking than the other boys, Nebuchadnezzar finds that God's blessed them with wisdom, knowledge, insight. He's going to find out next week that Daniel has unparalleled wisdom and insight into visions and dreams. You know, God blessed these boys. And we saw, first, the pressure to conform to life in Babylon. Second, we saw... Daniel's determination to resist. And this is God's blessing of faithfulness. God blessed their faithfulness. See, what happened was, even Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their simple, small act of faithfulness and obedience, put them in a position of humility and dependence on God. And He blessed them. They exceeded all their peers and their understanding, their wisdom. And it's all because they were faithful 
to him. Essentially, this is what I think we need to hear from this story. That the God who saw Daniel's faithfulness and blessed him for it also sees you. He sees you. You may not be in the courts of a pagan emperor, but you're facing immense pressure to conform. Everything about you has to change. You need to be re-educated, enculturated, re-identified. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's not just the political thing. That's what you're thinking I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way you think. You know, there is a certain mindset that's present in the world. We saw it in the book of Ephesians. It's a, a mindset of a world opposed to God, arrogantly setting itself up as the true authority, that each one of us has the right and autonomy to do what makes sense and feels right to us. And as a result, the world pressures us to conform, to change our mind about right and wrong, to redefine our theology so that we fit into a pluralistic world, make it more palatable to the people around us. And it's working. You know, our denomination has an organization called Lifeway, publishes books, but they also have a research arm, Lifeway Research. And this summer they did a study of Protestant churchgoers, you know, us, people who go to church. And they asked them questions about the Bible. And a quarter of all Protestant churchgoers believe that some biblical truths become obsolete as culture changes. That, that 25% is not here today. You know what I'm saying? Uh, 25% of Protestant churchgoing good people believe that some things the Bible teaches changes as the culture does. That's what I'm talking about. Pressure to conform. Not just women ought not wear makeup and you know earrings or something. I'm talking about worldview stuff. Who made the world? How did he make us? For what purpose are we created? You know, our world tells us that it's right to think that God created us just so we could pursue happiness and pleasure. The Bible says God created us for his own glory, that we'd live for him. So pressure to conform to the world's way of thinking, but also the world's way of living, right? To go about the way of the world means to live according to one's own desires. It means to turn a blind eye to the sinful behaviors happening around us and to even join in if nobody else is watching. And that's how Paul described it in Romans 1.32. He, he said the sinful person knows God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, and he's just listed a bunch of wicked behaviors, though they know that God's righteous decree says those who practice those things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So we find ourselves, even as, as good Christian people, feeling pressure to, you know, turn a blind eye to what's happening around us or saying, who am I to judge? What that person wants to do with their life is their own business. And so we're being pressed and day by day conformed a little bit more unless we got our minds and our eyes open to be conformed to the way of the world, to think like the world thinks, to live like the world lives. And, you know, I believe as a 31-year-old man that unless God sends spiritual awakening to our country or Jesus comes back to judge his enemies, 
It's going to get worse. So what do you do? You're not in a pagan court being reinculturated and educated, re-identified according to Nebuchadnezzar's way. Instead, you're just sort of floating out here in a successful, prosperous, hedonistic culture. What do you do? We do the same thing that Daniel did. You determine in your own heart, you make a resolve, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to get caught up in it. I'm going to be faithful in the fire. And so I think what you need to hear and what you need to be able to say is I believe God blesses faithfulness. Do you believe that? I believe God blesses faithfulness. Y'all want to say it with me? I believe God blesses faithfulness. Now you believe it. You've said it. You know, you would never lie in a church. You believe God blesses faithfulness. I mean, that was Daniel's whole thing. He knew that, yeah, you know what? Um, I'm putting my neck out here. Saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to eat this king's food. And Ashpenaz has already told me that if at the end of the whole thing I look weak, somebody's hanging for it. Somebody's going to have to pay. But I believe that God is going to bless and honor my unflinching obedience and faithfulness. And on the other end, it's going to be okay. And that's exactly what God did. God blessed Daniel for ten days, made him look good. And at the end of three years, he had strengthened him, had given him wisdom, had given him knowledge, insight into dreams and visions. He'd elevated him into a place of honor. I mean, Daniel's life in Babylon lasts for 70 years. It says he stood in the king's presence until the first day of, of Cyrus. That's 67 years after Daniel was taken in chains to Babylon. I mean, he lived through successive empires. Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son takes over. Uh, the, the Babylonians are taken over by the Medes. The Medes are conquered by the Persians. And there's Daniel right there, the king's trusted advisor. You know, people don't last in Washington through successive administrations. And we're supposed to be reasonable and rational. What do you think these ancient people did to advisors to the former king? But Daniel was blessed because he was faithful. So your faithfulness may look different than Daniel's. It's not about kosher foods. We praise God for bacon. But it is about doing what pleases him. I mean, Paul put it like this in Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to be faithful? It's not about what you eat. It's about thinking clearly to know what God really wants from you. You. What does God want out of your life? Do you know what God wants from you? He wants you to think clearly, to know what His will is, and then to live it out. It's what Peter said, 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. For as it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Well, the world is constantly pressuring you to conform. Your way of thinking, your way of living. But you have to resist. You have to resolve and determine in your heart that you will not be conformed to that way of thinking or that way of living. The only way you'll do that, take the risk, put your neck out there, stand up for what you know is right, is if in the back of your mind you believe 
whatever happens as a result of my obedience and faithfulness, I'm holding out for God's blessing. Not what these people think or say or do as a result of that. I want you to know that blessing is good. Sometimes it's even material blessings. Now Daniel's obedience through the course of his life ends up, he's, uh, we're going to see it later when he sees this writing on the wall and he interprets what the, light, the, the writing means. Uh, it's really great, Belshazzar, and uh, can't wait to get there. But he interprets it correctly, says, hey, tonight the kingdom's going to be taken from your grasp. And Belshazzar says, this man has spoken truthfully. Bring him a robe of purple, wrap it around him, and put a necklace around his neck. Daniel received material blessings. He said, I'm going to eat vegetable for, t- for this three-year period. But Daniel went on to live a life of luxury in the king's palace. And sometimes that's the way it works. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 6 that children ought to obey their father and their mother so that it may go well with them on the earth. Now, I think we sort of struggle against that sometimes because it makes our obedience contingent on the reward. We know salvation is by grace through faith, not a gift of works so that none may boast. We know that. But we also do believe that there's a crown of righteousness waiting for us who run our race and persevere to the end. That sometimes God gives us blessings as a result of our obedience, and when kids obey their parents, it tends to work out well for them. They learn responsibility and accountability, and that takes them far in life. It goes well with them. You know, many people attest that when they finally gave themselves over to giving generously and faithfully tithing, they had more money than they had had before. They were worried they weren't going to be able to live on that if they were faithful to what God had called them to. But he had never abandoned them, but always provided for their needs, and they had everything they wanted. Now, Jesus, he told parables over and over and over that hinge on a servant who had been entrusted with a little bit, proving his faithfulness. He says, you have been faithful with a little. You'll be entrusted with much. That's the way it works. Sometimes our faithfulness and our obedience to God in little things ends up producing a harvest in our lives. We experience that. So sometimes it's material blessings. But often it's spiritual blessing. The person who commits themselves to faithfulness and obedience to Jesus, they don't always get a random check in the mail, but they do experience all sorts of good things from him. Paul says in Galatians 5 that the person who turns their back on living according to their sinful desires and walks with the Spirit day by day experience the Spirit's fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a huge blessing. A person who has Spirit-given peace in 2020 is blessed. But you don't get that by living unfaithfully, unfaithfully and disobediently. You walk with the Spirit, keep in step with Him, you'll experience the Spirit's fruit. But you turn your back on God and you will be a miserable person. You won't know no peace You won't know faithfulness. You won't know self-control. So it's often spiritual blessings. Paul, uh, James says that it's not just in our own hearts. Like, don't be anxious about anything, but make your request known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's great. My heart and my mind. But I live with three other human beings. And sometimes I'm not the problem in my house. Actually, most of the times I am the problem. But sometimes I'm not. So you got anything for me there, Lord? Well, James says in James 3, where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, 
There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that comes from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Or some families need that. Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you, you commit yourself to faithfully following God's commands for your life and living according to His way, walking in step with His Spirit. And all of a sudden, where before there was every kind of vile practice and selfish ambition, mom and dad at each other's throats, all kind of disorder, there's peace. There's love. There's self-control, sincerity, openness to reason. God wants to bless us. And He blesses us when we're faithful. I mean, it even comes to the point where He blesses us in difficult circumstances. So it's the opposite of how He sometimes blesses us materially. Sometimes we're not blessed materially at all. We end up in a mess. And still, God blesses us spiritually. Paul wrote from a prison cell. He said, I, knew, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance... I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. God blesses faithfulness. Paul sitting in a jail cell for preaching the gospel, not being ashamed, not worrying about what it was going to cost him if he went to a new city and started preaching. The man who was beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead multiple times, locked up in prison, humiliated publicly, wasn't ashamed of Jesus. He's willing to do it, willing to be faithful despite the cost because he knew God would bless him for it. So sometimes it's material, often it's spiritual, but there's always an eternal blessing. And this is what I find my own soul going back to again and again. You know, um, Jesus tells us, this world you'll have trouble. Paul describes what it'll be like in the last days when peoples are lovers of self rather than lovers of God when it seems like everybody's turned their back on Jesus all of a sudden? He says that's what we should expect. And so if our world does grow darker and darker and the fires around us start to heat up and we face suffering here, and not rich foods and good wine from the king's table, okay. Paul says, Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's being revealed to us. Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal. That's the Christian's MO. That's the way we're supposed to be. Paul says, don't fix your eyes on the things that are seen, the things that are not seen. Things that are seen are temporal. They're wasting away day by day. Their destination is to be burned up in fire of judgment. The things that are not seen are eternal. will go on forever and ever and ever. And so we believe that that is our hope. We're not living for happiness and comfort and security here. We're living for Jesus. Because of that, the apostles, they were willing to suffer over and over and over. Acts 5, Peter and John brought before the Sanhedrin. Who do you guys think you are? You're uneducated. You don't have the right credentials to be teaching. Not only that, but you're teaching in the name of Jesus. Shut up. Stop. They beat him turn them loose. Acts 5 says they go on rejoicing. They were found worthy to suffer for the name. 
Oh, if we start suffering, we're like, what have we done wrong? Where, where did we mess that up? We had things going real good, Lord. Stephen, the early preacher, deacon, Acts chapter 7, calls out the hypocrisy, the hard-heartedness, the people of Israel. They plug their ears, run at him, Acts 7 says, charge him, screaming, ah! Take him outside the city and throw rocks at him until he dies. And while he's standing there, he looks up into heaven, and he quotes from Daniel, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What enables a person at the moment of death to experience peace and joy in Christ? Except the confidence that God blesses faithfulness. And so we have to fix in our mind while things are okay that the blessing God gives to the faithful is worth any more comfort than compromise or conformity could ever give us. It's not worth turning my back on Jesus to avoid an awkward conversation at work. It's not worth turning my back on the God who's been faithful to me just so I don't have to get a little uncomfortable. There's an eternal blessing, Jesus says, stored up for those who endure to the end. For those who are like Joseph in Potiphar's house who refused the advances of the world, say, hey, you can have my coat. I'm out of here. Don't want no part of that. People who, like Moses, choose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin and who consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt or America for they're looking for their true reward. For the people who look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider this. Consider him. Hold it in front of your minds. Reflect on it. Meditate. Consider this. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I take that to mean that we're supposed to look to Jesus not just as the hope and ground of our salvation. That he willingly offered himself up on the cross for the joy that was set before him so that you and I could know God. But that his willing act of self-denial and sacrifice is supposed to be a motivation, an example for the kind of life he's calling us to live. This is a Jesus who before he died, long before, looked at people like us, people who'd heard enough of Jesus' message to know that he was preaching something good, that they wanted in on it. But they'd heard enough to know that it might cost them something. And they were sort of off the horse, on the horse, you know, trying to decide what they were going to do. And in Luke 9, Jesus says to them, if anybody wants to come after me, you can. The offer is open and free to everybody 
Whoever wants to come after me, come on. But take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. There's no shadows and mirrors with Jesus, no illusions that it's going to be easy. But when we get it fixed in our mind, that faithfulness to God always works out. He blesses faithfulness. Maybe material sometimes. It's often spiritual. But it's always an eternal blessing. And I'm not living for comfort and joy in a Babylonian court. I'm not living to taste from the king's table. I'm living so that when I stand before my maker and judge, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. How about you? Because here's the thing. I believe God's calling us to repent. He's hoping to set you guys up easy on Wednesday nights in that revival series. Yes, the Lord wants me to say this now. I think God wants us to repent for having the wrong ideas about what it means to be a Christian, to be a church, to be the church, to remember what our identity is as a pilgrim people, always looking for our real home, the city whose builder and architect is God, whose foundation is hidden on sand, the shakiness of human wisdom and reason, but it stands on God himself, the one who made us and loved us and sent his son for us, who saved us, who's given us his spirit to empower us, enable us to live the life he's called us to live. Somewhere, We've gotten off track on that. We never learned what Daniel learned as a 12-year-old boy, that faithfulness to God is more important than any fleeting comfort this world provides. And so I want to challenge you today to repent. Repentance is, is simple, but it's not easy. Repentance means to see your sin as sin, an affront to God, something that violates his character as the one who is true and good, violates your relationship with him as your maker and savior, confesses it, admits to what he already knows, apologizes for it, says, I'm sorry I did that, asks to be cleansed of it, Lord, make me new as if I'd never done that before, bring me back to where I was with you at the start and asks for him to help you do what you know you should do. And we Christians, we're good at beating ourselves up. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've struggled these past few months. I've gotten off track somewhere along the way. And then we'll leave it at that. As if what God wants us to do is just to admit what he already knows. But what God's after is a people who have humbled themselves before him have repented and turned their back on sin and have committed to living for him. And so I want to just invite you now to repent. Not good at public invitations. I never know what to, to do, whether you should raise your hand or come to the front. But you know what you should do. You know what the Spirit's speaking to you in your heart. So I'm going to ask Mike and the band to go ahead and come, and we're going to sing another song. But before we do, just sit here. You guys can come on now, but 
before we sing, we can sit in the quiet and stillness to search our hearts, to have the Holy Spirit show us and reveal to us where we've been unfaithful, to where we've compromised and conformed. Ask Him to help us confess, repent, find cleansing, and commit our way to Him. So let's pray now, will you?